God been good to anybody here? My pastor always started his sermon with that question. But he also had a second question. The second question he asked was, who's he been the best to? God doesn't have a problem with us thinking that we're his favorite. The psalmist said, to delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. The literal translation of that passage says, let oneself be spoiled by Yahweh. God enjoys spoiling his kids. What an incredible privilege to be in the house of God today and in the presence of the greatest father in all the world. Nobody will ever walk out today embarrassed, shamed, or humiliated. In spite of your worst failure, if you can just get back to the house of God, find an altar to repent, you won't walk away feeling worthless. You'll walk away feeling like you're the most valuable person that exists. Us humans can't do that. If somebody in our family messes up, we have to say things like, I told you so. I knew you'd do that. If you'd listen to me, this wouldn't have happened. God never does that. He's the greatest father in all the world. And there's really none like him today. And what an honor just to be in his presence today. Luke chapter 4, beginning verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. There went out a fame of him through all the region round about. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for it to read. There was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, actually when he had unrolled the scroll, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to captives, recovering of sight to blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? For a few moments today, I will speak to you from the subject, the purpose of the church. The Lord bless you, may be seated. Before I begin today, let me say what an incredible honor it is to be here. And I, I pray today that I say something that can help you to have the best life you possibly could have. I'm tired of seeing God's kids live beneath their privilege. 
a lot of us live like we're stepchildren. And I don't say that in a derogatory sense, just as the fact that we don't think we belong. We live our lives in shame and guilt. We live our lives in condemnation. And we are never successful. Now, to put you at ease today, I do have a degree in clinical psychology, but I don't read minds. And I have begged God, please do not reveal what people think. I don't need the word of knowledge. I don't, I don't covet that gift. So he's not revealing to me today anything in your life. I can't read your mind, but I can read your face. And our face defines how we're living life. Our face tells people whether or not we're happy or sad, depressed. It tells people whether we're angry or enraged or we're jealous. Every human emotion shows up on the face. You don't have an emotion that exists that doesn't show up here unless you're a sociopath. Now, if you're a sociopath, you can control your face and nothing ever shows up here. But if, if you're not some evil person, if, if something happens you don't like, it just shows up here. I have traveled Pentecost for 37 years, full time. I've been all over the world. I've seen God's kids in China, Malaysia, Europe, South America, Central America. I haven't been to Africa yet. But I can tell you that when you look at God's kids outside of America, they appear to enjoy living for God. If you look at God's kids in America, we look like we eat limes for breakfast, lemons for lunch, grapefruits for supper. There's not one ounce of evidence in our countenance that indicates we are enjoying our life and we are living life to its fullest. Our world has become so focused on wrong that they can't see anything else other than disaster. You can't pick up a newspaper and read it and find stories that make you feel good. All that's reported today is the junk and garbage of life, and we, we feed on that on a daily basis, and it starts affecting the way we think and the way we live. If you read about the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelations and you read what God says about them, all of God's complaints about each of those churches, everything he said I don't like are characteristics of the city they live in. The churches had lived in their world so long that they had started acting like and thinking like their world. And the easiest thing for you and I to do is to chase the wrong dream 
instead of having our sights on heaven, we get attached to this world. And as we get attached to this world, we quit living our life as if we're gonna, we have a different destiny. We, we quit living our life as if we're ambassadors from his world to this world, and we start becoming attached to this world, and so we start looking like and becoming like the world that we live in. I can have the greatest life I desire living for God. There's no greater life that exists. There's no life full of more purpose than living for God. Andrew Newberg in studying the human brain has discovered some incredible things about about what God has done for us. He, He was raised by a dad who was a lawyer and an atheist or agnostic, didn't believe in God. As a kid, this kid would argue with this dad, how do you know God don't exist? And dad would try to use his lawyer techniques to argue that that God is no different than uh, any myth you believe, Santa Claus, Snow White, Easter Bunny, all the myths, Jesus is just a myth. And he would say, can you prove that? And he'd argue with reason. So this kid grows up, goes to college, becomes a radiologist, and a psychiatrist and starts studying the human brain. And his first book is entitled, Why God Won't Go Away. And he discovered that you have a set of neurons in your brain that he calls the God neurons. If you believe in God, that part of your brain works. If you don't believe in God, that part of your brain don't work. So if you won't be brain dead, just deny God. He's also discovered that just thinking about God, reading his word, or praying on a regular basis causes your brain to grow and get bigger. It creates new dendrites and new synaptic connections just through prayer, meditation, just thinking about God, just contemplating God, and all it requires is just 12 minutes on a daily basis. There's nothing greater than this. But yet, we don't act like it. The Bible says the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it is righteousness, peace, and joy Where? In all of us born-again believers that have been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sin and have been filled with his spirit through the evidence of speaking and and we are born a spiritual creature by a language that was spoken, then all of those things ought to be part of our lives because it's in The Holy Ghost. Now, people who don't have the Holy Ghost can't have what we can have. The the sad part of it is there's too many of us depending on crutches just to exist. We've lost our joy. I dare you to ask somebody how they're doing today. That's a two-hour conversation. When I was a child, if you asked somebody how they were doing, you'd never hear them complain 
or talk about their kids or their bodies or their aches or their pains or their diseases or, or, or the chaos at work or, or whatever's happening. If you ask somebody 50, 60 years ago, how are you doing? Their response would be, oh, I'm blessed. I'm living a blessed life. Jesus has been good to me. Let me tell you about what he's done. And then start rehearsing or telling you something God had done for them that week. But we've lived in this complaining world so long that now all we do is complain. And you come to church and get your feelings hurt because somebody don't speak to you. I probably will irritate you a little bit today. Jesus walks into Nazareth for the first time after being baptized by John. He's been caught away in the wilderness. He's been tempted for 40 days. He goes back to Jordan. There at Jordan, he begins to teach and preach. He gathers disciples. Then he goes home. But he don't go home directly. He bypassed Nazareth. He first went to Samaria. Then from Samaria, he goes to Capernaum. And at Capernaum, he begins to teach and preach. And Luke says that the fame of him spread through all the region round about. And as the fame began to spread, people began to hear about him and people began to inquire and ask and, and miracles are taking place. All kinds of things are taking place. And now he returns home. It's probably six months after Jordan that he finally comes back to Nazareth for the first and last time. He comes home. He's not an invited guest. He's not like me today. I was invited to be here. So if I give you a problem today, don't blame me, blame him. He invited me. <laughs> he wasn't invited. He shows up in the synagogue. Now, I could preach you 15 sermons from this passage of Scripture. I could preach you a sermon about Jesus was at church every time the church doors were open because as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. That's every Friday night, Saturday morning. He went into the synagogue. On, he was always at church. I could also preach to you about substituting the real thing for a fake. Because that's what the synagogue is. See, a synagogue was never the will of God. God never gave them instructions on how to build it. He never told them how to build it. When they got to Babylon and they had no place of worship, by, in Babylon they come up with this idea that we've got to create these places where we can gather and teach our children about who we are and who they are. And so they never lose the, the, the knowledge that they're Abraham's kids. So they create these synagogues. And there was one synagogue in every community that had at least 100 Jewish people living there. If there was more than 100, they'd have two. If there's more than 200, they'd have three. If there's more than 300, for every 100 people in that city or community, they'd have a synagogue. So synagogues become a place where we come and you read the word of God and you just talk about it. It's only a place to have a religious discussion 
without an experience. Church was never designed to be a place where you come and talk about God. It's a place you come and encounter God. We don't need synagogues today where we just have discussions and we're going to talk about what God does. We need to see a demonstration of the power of God moving in our midst because we need to create the right kind of environment for that to take place. You will never find any scripture in the Bible that ever says Satan was in the temple. But he showed up at a synagogue on a regular basis. When you create the right atmosphere, Satan will never enter. But if you create the wrong atmosphere, he'll sit on the pew beside you. And you'll have all kinds of issues as a result of it. So you got, you got to make sure you create the right kind of atmosphere if you expect to see God move or demonstrate in your presence. This is the only time in the ministry of Jesus that he openly declared this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Today. 600 years before Isaiah had prophesied. Isaiah chapter 61 is where he's reading from. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the broken hearted, to preach deliverance to captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. I could entitle my sermon The Six Steps of Healing because that's what he just gave us. The reason Jesus came is so he could create a place where people who have broken lives can come and find healing for broken hearts and broken lives. The whole purpose of this church is to be a hospital where the world can find safety and a haven of rest. But unfortunately in America today, we've got so many broken issues in our lives and broken homes that we just bring our brokenness to church and the world has no place to be healed. See, I am convinced the reason America is not seeing the revival it has seen in the past is because of broken families. The church is no stronger than its weakest family. You can't have the flu in one finger. We're a body. As members of the body, all that junk that happens in our life, you drag it right in here. I, I can tell you today See, most places I go, the pastors usually say, would you like to drive a vehicle? The older I get, the more they ask that question. I'm not sure why, but I get to ask that question. And I, a lot of times I'll say yes, and for only one reason. I don't need the car to travel. I'm, I'm good at my, my hotel room. I'm an incredible introvert. I'm good company. I don't need other people. 
I can spend hours and days by myself without any kind of interaction with human. I can get on a plane, fly 18 hours, and never say a word to the person beside me. That's just me. And I, I, I like to get to church early because I like to watch you show up. The odds are incredibly high. Several of you came today unhappy. You had some really good discussions on the way. Some discussions that caused blood vessels to bulge and children to hide because they were embarrassed by what's in the front seat. You can pull into the church parking lot, park your vehicle. I've, I've seen thousand people do it. Park your vehicle, get out of that vehicle, and transformation happens in a moment of time. The anger's gone. You put on your happy face. You bounce inside the house of God. Shout and run the aisles and go pick up where you left off on the way home. You have confined church to this building. You have confined your relationship to God to this place. And you don't have to do it at home. You don't have to do anything anywhere else. You just only have to act like God's kids when you get here. You don't need a devil to go to hell. You need a family to go to hell. Devil's not going to wreck your home or your marriage. You're going to wreck it. You're going to do things and say things that wound lives and hurt lives and, and cause scars that, that never go away. I remember hearing as a kid in church, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You lying devil, you can beat me with a stick and I can recover. You say words to me and you scar me for life because the Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue. You have the power to destroy life or create life just by your words and what you say to each other. See, God needs a hospital. This world is broke. This world is hurting and God created this place to be his hospital so that the broken and wounded of life can come and the instant they walk in, they can, they can know that they're safe and they can be healed from the trauma life has produced. See, Jesus declared, I have been sent to preach the gospel to who? The poor. Now, what did God promise Abraham? I'll bless you. I'll bless them that bless you. I'll curse them that curse you. Through you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Has God broke his promise? At the time the Bible was written, according to history, there are 60 thousand Jewish people living in the city of Rome that control the entire monetary system of the Roman Empire. They're not poor financially to a Jewish person. You were poor 
when you got to a place in life that you had an issue that you couldn't solve, your family can't solve, your friends can't solve, your money can't solve, your education can't solve, there's a problem in your life that's so big that the only source to help you is God. And it's the man who becomes God-dependent that recognizes that God is the source of my life and without him, I can't do anything correctly. I'm part of the hippie generation. I was not a hippie, but I'm part of that generation. I remember all the chaos that was happening to young people at my age. America experienced this incredible epidemic of addiction. Drug overdoses weren't, they increased, but it really wasn't an overdose that was killing all the young people in America in the 60s and 70s. There was a new drug that was a hallucinogenic and caused them to think they're Superman. They could fly, jump off buildings, and they died by the hundreds of thousands. Then all of a sudden, everybody becomes concerned. What's causing this? How'd we get here? Was the product of the 200 or 1,200% divorce rate that happened in America from 40 to 46. Now we've got kids coming out of the broken home that, that don't have how to, to heal in life, and so they numb life. So addictions start becoming rampant because they're going to numb and, and, and try to control the pain that's there. They don't know how to deal with it, and so they numb it. And they come up with a new term called codependency. God, the name Branshaw was one of the first to use it. They define codependency as moral and spiritual bankruptcy. They just said, you could never become codependent or a drug addict or an alcoholic unless you first destroy your moral values and your spiritual values. Then they defined it as living your life through people. Now, I just shared with you that Andrew Newberg said that there's a part of my brain called God neurons. God made me codependent. Everybody in this room is codependent. But we're supposed to be codependent on God. We're supposed to connect to God. And if I connect to God correctly, then my life becomes whole. But if I don't connect to him correctly, I take my God connection and start sticking it to the closest thing that looks like God, and that's humans made in his image. So I start living my life through people instead of God. I'm not happy unless my wife's happy or my kids are happy or my grandkids are happy or my saints are happy. And we've had this epidemic of codependency sweep through us. So church has become our fix instead of our relationship. And we come to church to feel something. Pentecostals can't handle teaching. It's got to be wide open. I, I kept hearing phrases this week about how to prepare the atmosphere. Now, I'm going to give you a charged atmosphere, my brain's thinking. 
Do they all have rubber bands around their arms? Are the blood vessels bullets? Who's got the syringes? Who's, who's fixing to charge them all up here? You don't live for God because of what you feel. You better live for God because of what you know, not what you feel. What you feel will destroy you. What you know will change your life. You don't mainline Jesus. He don't want to be mainlined. He's not your drug of choice. If he's your drug of choice, you'll have a high Sunday and somebody will have to talk you out of bed on Monday. Then you can barely crawl back to the house of God for midweek and now you can get your fix again and, and then you're going to crash the next. So you go from high to low, from a high. That's called bipolar. We've become bipolar Christians. We live from highs to lows, to highs to lows, to highs to lows. That's not God's plan. Jesus said, I, I, I want to show you. It was prophesied 600 years ago that if you'll just connect to me. Why was he having to say that to Israel? Alexander the Great couldn't conquer them. So he decided to influence them. So instead of making them all Greeks, he decided to put a lot of effort into making them Greeks philosophically or through philosophy. And he used philosophy to be integrated into their worship. And so they become apathetic. There's nobody looking for Jesus but old people. So Jesus walks into a world just like the one you're in. It's full of divorce. It's rampant. Worse than our day. Homes are broken. He knew every skeleton in every closet in Nazareth. And he walked in that day. He said, I've been sent here to give you a message. You can heal your home and your relationships, but you've got to take ownership and you're the ones going to heal it. So you don't mess things up and expect God to fix it because he's not going to fix it. You know why God hadn't healed anybody of COVID? Because he didn't create it. What man creates, man will endure. We won't get any help from God because he didn't make any of this stuff. He walks into this world. It's got all this junk in it. And he says, I've been sent to give you a message. If you'll put me back in the right place in your life, and you'll just start relying on me to help you solve problems, then I'll, the next thing I'm going to do is heal your brokenness. The literal translation of that passage of Scripture is I have been demanded to heal your brokenness. Healing of broken hearts is not an option to God. It's a requirement he placed on himself that if you admit you have a need, the first thing he's going to do is start healing the brokenness of your life. You don't ask him to heal your brokenness. You don't beg him. If you just say, God, I need you. You're, you're, you're the one I need in my life. I need you in my life. And when I put you where I should in my life, instantly you're going to start healing all the brokenness that life has produced. 
I've had a question asked to me several thousand times over the last 37 years. The question I hear is probably in the tens of thousands. The question I hear is, why did God let this happen to me? If you say God loves me, why would God allow somebody to hurt me like this? To answer that question, I've got to ask a question, which is actually a sign of major dysfunction. Dysfunctional families don't answer questions. They ask more questions. But I still have to ask the question. The question I have to ask you is, did you ever hurt anybody? Did God stop you? Now, if perchance there's some perfect individual in this building today that's never hurt anybody, then I need to ask another question. Have you ever hurt him? And I know there's not one halo present today. So there's not a person in this room hasn't hurt him at some point in life. God can't stop humans. You have a will. If he violates one human will, every other human loses their will at the instant he violates one. If he's going to violate a will, he'd have violated the atoms in the garden. Humans have choices. And we make choices. And our choices cause us issues and problems. But if I'll let him know he's, he's my source of help. He's my strong tower. He's the rock I run. He's the refuge of. When I let him know, you're, you're the one I need connected to. Instantly, he's going to start healing the brokenness of my heart. Now, I, I need to show you something. Where's the baptistry out? Right behind this wall. When you go down in water in baptism, what happens? You're baptized in the name of Jesus for what? Remission of sin. Paul called it the circumcision of the heart. When you go down in water in his name, while you're under that water, in a split second time, he does this incredible surgery and he cuts off every sin attached to your life. When you come up out of that water, that sin remains in the water. And anybody that's been baptized in, not the titles, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin will always tell you when they come up out of that water, it's like a load was lifted off of their shoulder because they were buried in that name. When you go down in water in baptism, he cuts all the sin of your life off. It's no longer there. It's, you'll never be judged for it. Now, you don't grow a halo. So from baptism to present, you now have an altar. So when you fail, you don't get baptized again. You come back to an altar and repent. And he says, okay, here's my blood. Take a sponge, dip it in my blood, erase the record. Now that record doesn't exist anymore. It's totally covered. Now God can forgive you of every sin you committed, but he cannot forgive 
one sin committed against you. I can prove to you there's one God that the Trinity cannot exist by forgiveness. I don't even need a Bible. I've got a son. His name is James Anthony. Mine is James Bradley. If someone hurts me really bad, I don't get on the telephone and I call Anthony. So-and-so hurt me really bad. Would you please forgive them for me? God was the injured party in the garden, not a son. To send a substitute would have never worked. For God to forgive sin, God had to overshadow a virgin. And there's that term used in the New Testament called Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, which literally translates the spirit of the one and only holiness. It defines his nature. The holiness of God overshadowed that virgin and produced Jesus Christ. And God became flesh so he could take on himself the sin that we have committed against him, not through a substitute. That's why lambs could never work. They only pushed it ahead and ahead and ahead and it was never removed until Jesus died on the cross. And Jesus' last words on the cross, according to John, who was the only one who was there to hear it, John said Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is, no, that's not what he said. That's what the English says. What Jesus screamed is, tetelestai, which is a verb that has a noun with it. But what he screamed was, I won! He didn't scream, it's over. He shouted with a voice of triumph, I won! I conquered sin that has destroyed my creation. I took it on myself so that my creation could become freed from sin. And I took it to a cross so I could hold my creation again. So when you receive the Holy Ghost, according to Newberg and their studies, God just wraps himself all the way around you and stimulates every nerve on your skin so it all is active at the same time. God just gives you a big hug. He embraces you. That's what he wanted to do from the garden. God can forgive you of your sin but he can't become your substitute when he couldn't be a substitute. You don't know how much God hated sin? Don't look at the cross. You gotta first go to Pilate's Hall. Go look at Pilate's Hall and you'll see how much God hated sin. When you go to the cross, it's not his hatred of sin, it's his love for you. When he got the cross, he crawled on it. They didn't have to force him. He crawled on that cross, stuck his hands out, and let them nail him to that cross. Your sin didn't nail him to a cross. Your value nailed him to a cross. He didn't die because you were worthless. 
He he died because you're the most valuable thing he created. And he wanted you to know how valuable you were to him. And so he stretched himself out there to die on a cross so that you could be free from the junk life has produced. So the instant he heals your broken heart, he's got to take you on a journey. He's got to liberate you from a prison you're living in. And the only prison that exists, matter of fact, the prison that you live in is now classified a disease. Doctors are being trained in therapy to help people who have this problem. And the prison you live in is the prison of unforgiveness. And it causes, according to Dr. Stephen Sanderson, 61% of cancer. The men with Meyer Clinic said 80% of strokes and heart attacks. When you don't forgive, you turn your body's immune system off. You shut down its ability to produce antigens to fight disease. It can't produce killer cells to drive away cancer. So you turn all this junk off in your life. And, and now God can't heal because God can't heal you if you don't forgive. He can't do it for you. So if there's healing needs to take place in your life, first thing you better check up on is, have I, am I holding on to things that people did for, to me or, or hurts that, that people did? I, I got to let them go. We've taught forgiveness wrong. And I don't have time to go through the whole step, so I'm going to give you a real short version of it. Forgiveness is not saying, I forgive you or I turn you over to Jesus. Forgiveness is doing exactly what Jesus did on the cross. When Jesus was dying on the cross, his, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God will never allow you to step into the arena of revenge because he declared vengeance is mine and he doesn't share it with one human being. But he will allow you to step into the arena of forgiveness and he'll allow you to take his blood and erase somebody else's record that sinned against you. Whatever you bind on earth will be Bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosened. That whole chapter, Matthew 18, is about forgiveness. It's not about spirits. You're not binding some devil. Jesus destroyed him. He screamed, I won at the cross. He conquered Satan at the cross. My life can change, but I'm going to have to change it. I've got to say, Jesus, Take your blood, go to the Lamb's book of life, erase this sin, never judge them for what they did to me. Now you give up all hope or revenge, and now you're truly free. Now I know what you're saying, but you don't know what they did. And my response is, it don't matter. You can't fix it. There is no rewind button. You don't embrace your inner child, you kick him out. Paul said, I put away. I expelled. I kicked out. You don't hug the child in your life. He's wrecking your life.
I have to choose to say, Jesus, you know how bad they hurt me, but I want you to erase this record. Don't ever judge them for what they did to me. I've heard horrible stories. I'm not really an architect, I'm a structural engineer. As a structural engineer, I have the ability to design buildings. In my state, I'm even allowed to design the whole part of the building. So I'm not an architect, structural engineer. I, I've been designed to look at details, the most minute of details. And, and so when you look at the details, then you start seeing things that you'd have never seen if you just look at the whole. If I want out of this junk that's happening, it requires me to say, okay, Jesus, I can't get a different outcome. You don't know, back it up, play it again, you're gonna fix it, you're not gonna rewind it. There's no beam me up, Scotty. They're gonna transport you back in time, you're gonna fix something somebody did. It's over. You can't do one thing about it other than forgive it. Let it go. I've heard horrible stories. I, I had great parents. I didn't go into psychology because I had d depression issues or, or family issues or, or abuse issues. I went to psychology because my pastor told me I needed to. I was taught to obey him. We had two people had a nervous breakdown, one suicide attempt in a month at our church and in the hospital. He said, you need to go back to school and figure out how we can help these people. So are you sure? Yes. So I did. I've been taught to be obedient. Well, that's a foreign concept, isn't it? Is, is that so shocking to you? I'm seeing looks of shock. <laughs> I've heard stories I don't understand. I, I don't understand how moms can torture their children. You know, we scream about abuse, but... Why do we never focus on what's really causing abuse and, and the issues of abuse and all this other junk? And we just ignore all the details. They, everybody knows them, but no one ever addresses them. Because they do, they, they know where the problem is and they won't address it. See, broken homes is the cause of every problem in America right now. 85% of all prison inmates come from fatherless homes. 90% of runaways come from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists come from fatherless homes. 80% of children with emotional disorders come from fatherless homes. Do I need to go on? They know all this. The statistics is at the CDC. They know it. But they won't admit where the issue is because they have to focus on families and that destroys their agenda because they don't need families. They need brokenness to control people. So they want you broke. They don't want you healed. They don't want your life in order. They need it as broke as it can possibly be so they can keep selling you things. I don't understand how moms, 60% of child abuse comes from mother. I don't understand how she can stab her child, pour hot sauce in their eyes, beat them until their kidneys become atrophied and, and never grow and have to have back surgery as adults to repair damage done as a 
kid. Cut their feet so they can't run away. I, I don't understand any of that. But it doesn't matter what she did or he did. If you want to be whole, then you've got to let them go. You're going to say, Jesus, take your blood, go to Mom's Lamb's Book of Life, erase every sin she committed against me, and never judge her for what she did. Jesus, take your blood, go to Dad's Lamb's Book of Life, erase every sin he committed against me, and never judge him for what he did. Then and only then are you going to be free. What was Stephen's prayer being stoned? Father, lay not this sin to their charge. Did anybody there ask for forgiveness? There's in, in Pentecost right now, in, there, there's this teaching going around that you can't forgive somebody, don't ask for it. Well, if that's true, Jesus didn't forgive nobody. See, our world's taking your book and, and, and twisted it. And I know I'm belaboring the point here for a little bit. The world says if someone hurts you, that you're supposed to go to them and tell them they hurt you. But you're going to free them and you're going to forgive them so you can be free. And they take it from Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus said, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remembers thy brother has aught against you, leave your gift at the altar and first be reconciled to thy brother. So that means Jesus said, I need, if you hurt me, then I'm obligated to go to you and tell you hurt me. Jesus didn't say no such thing. That violates the very next statements he makes about if thy brother smite thee on the right cheek, turn the other. Jesus didn't contradict himself. If my brother has ought against me, I'm the predator. I am not the victim. Jesus said, if you hurt somebody, don't you show up in my house and don't you offer one ounce of praise. You go to them that you know you hurt and you fix what you created in their life. In Mark, Jesus said, if you stand praying and your brother has offended you, forgive him. Now you're the victim. If you go get in somebody's face and you say, you hurt me really bad, but I'm going to forgive you, that's called passive-aggressive behavior. It's the ultimate form of revenge. I'm going to heaven. You're not. Little spoiled brat. Grow up. Quit acting like a six-year-old, become an adult, take ownership, change your life. But it hurts, you don't, you don't understand what they did. Quit whining about what they did. If you don't, you will repeat it and become them. 95 Percent of victims become predators. So if you don't do something to change it in your life, you're going to repeat the behavior that you've endured in your life. So do, do you want your life to be whole and get all the junk out of your life? Then simply do what he asked. 
I need you, God. You're going to heal my heart. Now you're going to take me by the hand and you're going to lead me through the corridors of my mind and you're going to take me all those places I got people locked up and you're going to hold my hand while I use your blood to erase their record so that they're never judged for what they did to me. And that's the day you walk out of prison. He also said, I've been sent to preach recovering of sight to the blind. Israel didn't have an epidemic of blindness. That's mental blindness. Denial. Oh, it don't hurt. I'm handling this. I got this one covered. But you dream about it. You talk about it. It's always in conversations. You can't ever get past. You've got it covered. Get out of denial. It hurt. Admit it. And then let it go. There's not a different outcome. And then he said, I've been sent to heal those that are set at liberty, them that are bruised. Did he say heal or set? It says set at liberty, them that are bruised. What, what's a bruise? A bruise is a result of contusion or blow of the body that ruptures a vessel, vein artery, allows your blood out of its natural capillary system. It can't get back to heart and lungs for oxygen. So it first turns blue, then green, then yellow, then fades away. By the time you see the effect, the artery is healed. You don't need healing from bruises. You need deliverance. And I've watched six little kids grow up at my house. Five little girls, one little boy. They're called grandkids. I'm not sure where the word grand came from, but I was lied to. Little girls, mayo, sugar, and spice, and everything nice. That's a bald-faced lie. <laughs> I don't like you. You're not my friend. But you know what I've noticed about all five of them, six of them? Your most powerful need as a human being is not to be fed. It is not to be held. It's not to be clothed. It's not to be loved. Your most powerful need as a human being is revenge. And you will do whatever is necessary to get even, no matter the consequences. So if you want to be whole, then Jesus said you've got to turn revenge loose. Then the last thing he said is preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the year of Jubilee. Jubilee is the year you get back everything you lost by bad decisions. Jubilee is recovering from all your mistakes, all your shortcomings. Jubilee allows you to get everything back. So Jesus quoted from Isaiah. We quit reading halfway through verse 2. But if you read verse 8, it says, And for your shame you shall have double, and in their land they shall possess the double. He can't keep people from hurting you, but if you'll let him heal you, whatever they stole, he'll give it back to you twofold. You want all your virtue back that someone stole? Your self-image, self-esteem, someone humiliated you or stole from you? 
then do those first five things and you'll get all of that back. And he just won't give you back virtue. He'll give you back double virtue. He won't just give you back self-image. He'll give you back double self-image. Now, where can you get a better deal than that? You got to do it his way. Please stand. Gracious Father, thank you for your incredible word and the treasures that are hidden in it when we decide to examine it and to study it. Thank you for providing healing for our lives so that we don't have to be at the mercy of what life has produced, but we can become free from its clutches, its influence, and its lies to become the vessel of honor you created us to be. Lord Jesus, I, I pray today that your gentle spirit would just invade this place and that your kids will feel your gentleness that's so powerful and safe that they'd let all their walls down and they wouldn't be afraid. Some have lived with their crutches so long they, they're afraid to get rid of them because they don't know if they knew, know how to live without them. So Jesus, I pray your children would trust you enough today to give you an invitation. They'd say to you, Jesus, take me by the hand. Walk with me through the quarters of my mind. Take me those places where I have things locked up. And hold my hand as I open that door and use your blood to erase records so my life is not tormented. Jesus, help me to get past denial. Jesus, I turn revenge loose. I let it go. And then, Jesus, you'll give them back everything life stole. Would you bless every heart that's here today? Would you start by healing brokenness? You're the broken heart mender. So would you heal some brokenness today? You're the healer, Jesus. Thank you for your presence.